bulletin and you can immediately turn there and know which sermon outline you ought to be looking at. But this morning might be a little confusing because both of them are missions. This morning is, it's all about missions. Tonight we'll be talking about missions, especially talking about faith promise missions. Today's text seems especially suited for our last Sunday before our Global Missions Emphasis Sunday. In chapter 13 of Acts, we find the birth of world missions. The last verse of chapter 12 begins the story by relating the return of Barnabas and Saul. We are told, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So just how important is missions anyway? Well, Henry Martin says that the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. Emil Bruner said... The church exists by missions, just as fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. Not having a heart for missions is the same as not having a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. Missions is the heart of God. To be cold toward missions reveals an indifference to what lies at the center of God himself. Now just having missionary as part of the sign out front really doesn't make you a missionary church. For many decades this church was the Valonia Missionary Baptist Church, but I would say to you this morning that I believe today that we're more a mission-minded church than we were when we had the label on our sign. A local church that is not mission-minded is, by definition, not really a church. It's a religious social club that really makes little or no impact on the world. I want to share with you this morning what we discover as we look at the church at Antioch about the church. First of all, I want you to see that we see the character of the church in the first two verses. It says, now in the church there was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who is called Niger, and Lucas of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The church at Antioch gives us the profile of what a missionary church should look like. First of all, it was an established church, a church that does not know where it's coming from or why it is here or where it is going is not likely to be of much use in mission outreach. Churches are always faced with the danger of slipping into a maintenance mode, a maintenance mentality where we focus on maintaining the status quo and preserving our traditions and 
We forget about our task of reaching the lost both locally and globally. Second, we discover that it was a well-taught church. Five men are listed as teachers in this church. Now, where did this great body of teachers come from? Well, it becomes evident that this church had obviously established teaching as a priority in the thinking of this church. Five names of the teachers here tell us an enormous amount about the church. First of all, there is Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. But he had the nickname Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. Barnabas was a Levite. He was a Jewish priest, but he was born in Cyprus, and he was in touch with the Greek culture. Simeon also called Niger. Niger means black. He was presumably a black African. Possibly he was the same man who carried the cross of Jesus as he stumbled on the way to Calvary. Lucas of Cyrene, that's modern-day Libya. His name is Latin, and he is obviously brought up in the Roman culture. Manian, that's the Greek form of a Hebrew name, Manahim. We're told that he was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. That is, he was raised with Herod Antipas. Brought up with him was a Greek word, which meant that he was the foster brother or the childhood companion of the king. He was an aristocrat. He was a VIP, but he is listed as just one of the family here in Antioch. It's interesting to note perhaps how two men raised together could turn out so differently. Herod killed John the Baptist and was involved in the trial of Jesus. He didn't give the slightest indication of any spiritual sensitivity. And yet Mannion, who was brought up in the same household, brought up with Herod in the same surroundings, not only became a Christian, but became a leader in the church. And of course, there is Saul. Paul was his Latin or Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name. Greek culture was his conditioning. Phariseeism was his training, but it is his life in Christ that became his purpose and his passion. This group of leaders suggests a church that is racially diverse, socially diverse, and ethically, ethnically diverse. It is a cosmopolitan church. It consists of Jews and Greeks, Arabs and Orientals and Romans, whites, blacks, rich, and poor. The church in Antioch did a very noble thing when they sent out five of their very best leaders. Third, it was a worshiping church. It says, as they ministered to the Lord, and the word ministered here is the word that we get liturgy from. In the Old Testament, liturgy referred to the ministry of the priest in the temple. But in the New Testament, we are taught the great doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. So in the New Testament sense, liturgy is used to refer to the worship and praise of God by all men. And fourth, it was a praying church. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasting. 
One thing that we have to understand about fasting, without a purpose, fasting can be miserable and self-centered in its experience. In fact, John Stott says it well when he says, for seldom, if ever, is fasting an end in itself. It is a negative action. It is abstention from food and other distractions for the sake of a positive one, worshiping or praying. Fasting is, of course, a negative. But worshiping and praising during a time of fasting is positive. The value is not in abstaining from food. God's not impressed by that. But it is in using the time that is gained for the purpose of prayer and worship. It is almost impossible, perhaps, to overstate the historical importance of this moment in Antioch in the history of the world. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in the missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion adherents of the Christian religion today with a Christian witness that now reaches into virtually every country of the world. The second thing I'd have you note this morning is the commission of the church. Verses 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. First of all, note that they were called by the Holy Spirit. The call of verse 2 is perfect tense. It means an action that was done in the past with a present lasting result. This shows that these two men had an inner calling already given by the Holy Spirit. It is God who sovereignly calls men and women into the ministry. It is also notable, as John MacArthur points out, God chooses for further ministry those already actively serving him. It is not likely that he will take idle Christians down off the shelf, dust them off, and entrust them with important work. First of all, they are called by the Holy Spirit, but secondly, they are commissioned by the church. The church is now recognizing this call of God by releasing these individuals to the task. While God alone did the commissioning, he chose to do it through the church, through the laying on of hands. Just as in the Old Testament, the person who was making an offering would lay his hands on the sacrifice, expressing his identification with that sacrifice. So now the church at Antioch lays hands on those who will be the church's first two missionaries. The church is saying by laying their hands on these individuals, brothers, we're with you in this. You're a part of us. And as you go, we go. Note also that God chose the best of the leadership. He didn't choose those that the church would not miss. He chose the cream of the crop. 
It says, having prayed for Saul and Barnabas and publicly identified with them, the Antioch church sent them away. Perhaps a better translation of that phrase would be they let them go or they released them. It is clear from verse 1 that it is the Holy Spirit, not the church, that issued the call. And since they had already been called by God, all the church could do was cut the cord and let them go. Third, I want you to notice the mission of the church, verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. They went from Seleucia, about 16, that's about 16 miles south of Antioch, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. From there, they went to Salamis on the, on the coast of Cyprus. It's worthy of note that they went as a team. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. There is danger in loneliness in the ministry. We need to have people who encourage and support and walk with us as we seek to serve the Lord in a hostile world. One assistant in this enterprise was John Mark, Barnabas's young cousin, who was taken along as their assistant or helper. He is, in fact, the first missionary intern. Fourth, notice the opposition to the church. It says when they had gone through the aisle, <clears throat> through the aisle to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose, na whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Salamis, the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. You know, it really shouldn't surprise us <clears throat> that when God's people seek to advance his purposes, that Satan will rise up in opposition. <clears throat> in this case, there was a man by the name of Bar-Jesus. That literally means son of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a popular name in that time, and it may or not, may not indicate that the man was seeking to identify himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also called Elimus, which means sorcerer or shaman. This man took a stand against Saul and Barnabas and actively sought to turn the proconsul Sergius Paulus away from the truth. He was determined to oppose and pervert the word, way of the Lord. And in keeping with his character, he made crooked the straight way of the Lord. And he was guilty of causing perversion rather than conversion. 
Finally, the situation apparently became more than the Apostle Paul could stand. He exposed this man as a fraud and declared God's judgment upon him. Paul says he is no son of Jesus. In fact, he is a son of the devil. Now, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? I don't think it was intended to be very nice. If you want to commit spiritual suicide, that really is one thing, but it is intensely more serious if you're intent on taking other people along with you. In fact, the severest words of the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are reserved for those who stand between men and the truth, who stand between men and God. Jesus himself had harsh words concerning those that would divert anyone from the truth. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Depth of the, depth of the sea. Paul confronted Bar-Jesus with his spiritual blindness and he imposed on him a short-term physical blindness. One can only wonder if perhaps the Apostle Paul hoped that this blindness would lead him to repentance and faith just as his blindness had led him to faith. In the middle of verse 9, Saul is for the first time called Paul. If we look back at verse 2, we'll find Barnabas and Saul. <clears throat> In verse 7, where Sergius Paulus sends for two, the missionaries, it is Barnabas and Saul. Then in verse 9, Saul becomes Paul. In verse 13 says, Paul and his companions. Finally, in verse 42, we find it is now Paul and Barnabas. He has taken the prominent position. That's interesting because Paul has been in the background now for a long time. He has spent three obscure years, we're told, in Arabia and perhaps as many as seven years in Asia Minor at Tarsus and two more years at Antioch, <clears throat> 12 years of preparation. And now finally, Paul, as a middle-aged man, God is ready to begin to use him. Now note... <clears throat> The success of the church. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. <clears throat> Whenever a believer ministers in the name of the Lord, they will see both successes and failures. When the proconsul saw what had happened, we are told that he believed. But he was amazed not at what he had seen in this man being reduced to blindness, but he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. It would appear that he became a sincere believer. Interesting, perhaps, that modern archaeology has confirmed that this man existed because inscriptions bearing his name have been found. Sir William Ramsey, the famous archaeologist, has uncovered evidence that he was a Christian and that his whole family became Christians and were very prominent in Christian circles 
after this event. As is always the case, when we run up against opposition, we can move forward or we can retreat and go home. It seems that the realities of missionary life were too much for John Mark. John Mark decided that he had had enough and he went home. Paul and his party went forward. According to Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos and they came to Pergia and Pamphylia, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John Mark was a wonderful young man, but it could be that in this point in his life, he became a victim of his own unrealistic expectations. Perhaps he was just enamored with the thought the romance of the venture, but when reality set in, he couldn't take it. Possibly the work became more difficult as he encountered unfamiliar territory on the mainland. We don't know. The sad reality is that many of us are not unlike John Mark. When things don't go well or things don't go as successful as we think they ought to, we say, well, this can't be God's will because it's too hard. I know it's not God's will because it hurts, but sometimes life is hard, and sometimes we do go through hurts. There is a cost to sincere service for the Lord. Never share your faith and you'll never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on social issues, and you'll never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because of a movie or a play because it's offensive, and you'll never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business, and you will not lose the trade of not-so-honest associates. Never reach out to the needy, and you'll never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrows, almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and the spiritual victory as you live your life in allegiance to him. I would close this morning by asking you some serious questions about your involvement in the work of missions. Are you supporting missions through your prayers? Are you giving financially through faith promise support are you writing and encouraging our missionaries are you volunteering for mission trips or even perhaps considering that God has called you to the mission field the world as needy as ever as John Piper puts it there are only three possibilities in life to be a goer to be a sender or to be disobedient. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement 
of the church at Antioch, what it means to be a mission-minded church. We really desire to be that. We desire to reach our community locally for you. And we desire to be a part of carrying the gospel message globally. I pray that you would encourage our hearts as our as to our involvement in missions. Help us to be faithful in praying for our missionaries. Not praying just general prayers, God bless the missionaries, but knowing enough about our missionaries to pray specifically for them and their needs. Lord, help us to pray about what you would have us to do in being a part of faith promise missions and get what you would have us to give in this coming year. There are some who have not yet become a part in any way, and Lord, I pray you'd encourage their heart to step out on faith and begin to give. There are others who need to increase their giving, and Lord, I pray that you'd let them know what it is that you would have them to do. Thank you, Lord, for those who have been so faithful over the years to give consistently. The reason that we have been able to support our missionaries so faithfully is because these people have been so faithful in their giving. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our heart through our missionary guests next week. I pray that you watch over each one that's coming here to share with us, and I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive that message. Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts today, and if there's one here today that doesn't know you in a personal way, then Lord, I pray that you might speak to their heart today. There's one here that needs to make some move for you. You call them to some area of service, then Lord, I pray that you'd continue to speak to their heart. Show them what it is that you would have them to do. Help each of us to be faithful in what you've given us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.